Well, good morning. Welcome to East Lake. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, if this is your first time, it's a great day to come check us out. Uh, we are on part two of a series we're calling In Vino Veritas. Inside of your program uh, is a note sheet. It looks just like this. Go ahead and pull that out on the back side of the spot to be able to write some things down. Uh, there's also, we're going to be going through a few things on the screen today. If you didn't get them down fast enough, you can text the word notes to 97,000 and get them in that direction. But we started a series last week, and it, we said it's not really a series about wine as much as a series about joy. A lot of times in our culture, wine is likened to joy. Um, it's like symbolic. You, you, uh, the picture of, uh, of people at a winery or drinking wine is not something you do in a rush. It's something that, that takes time, and it's kind of out of leisure, and, 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 and it results in joy. And so that's been the kind of the headway or the gateway towards talking about joy. I think joy is incredibly important piece of Scripture that goes far underlooked in the life of the church. And um, C.S. Lewis once said that joy is the serious business of heaven. And uh, the fact that it doesn't get talked about very much is an unfortunate thing. So we said, well, let's do a series on it and talk about it for a little bit. So last week, I introduced you to a uh, uh, a, a quote that has been in my mind and rattling around in my brain for, and really is the reason why we talked about joy. It comes from a guy you've probably never heard of, doesn't matter, but here's what he says. Of all of the accusations against Christians, uh, the most terrible one was uttered by Nitschke when he said that Christians had no joy, right? And it doesn't matter who Nitschke is, Frederick Nietzsche is a philosopher, but imagine and put somebody else's name in that category is perhaps one of the accusations that outsiders have about people who are inside the church system that they have no joy, and we must recover the meaning of this great joy. The fact that somebody would point and look at the life of a Christian and be like, see, there's, there's, no, there's no excitement about that. They go, and they get guilted on, and then they leave, and they pay for it and, and, and through this gift and offerings and all this kind of stuff. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't see the difference in joy uh, in the experience of life uh, I, don't, I, I can't look at somebody and go, well, they must be a Christian. Look how much they're enjoying life. In fact, they would say uh, the opposite. I don't even think it's equal. I think it's probably less joy. Those who are, seem to be the most religious, typically, in our opinion, public opinion, have the least amount of joy, are going through life with a negative outlook on joy. You cannot be happy. God does not want you to be happy. He wants you to be good. Uh, and there's a, there is a difference. You cannot be good and, and joyful. So we said, well, we got to talk about this because if joy is the serious business of heaven, as C.S. Lewis says, then we probably need to rediscover the meaning and the purpose of joy. We said last week that life is lived in the balance between duty and joy. And yes, I did say duty. I had somebody first service go, you said duty like 10 times and I'm a teacher. And so I have to be like, <laughs> I'm 30. I shouldn't laugh at that. I'm going to say duty a lot. So just mark it off your bingo checklist and let's move on. Okay. Life is lived heavily between duty and joy. A sense of here's what I have to do out of duty obligation or what I ought to do, or um, uh, this is what my employer says I have to do, or this is the expectations that my spouse has placed upon me, or within the confines of marriage, this is what good husbands or good wives do. This is my duty. This is what I have to do. And then this is what I want to do. This is my sense of joy or freedom, or this is my time. I get to do what I want with it. And our life is, is lived between these two things. Now, it's not an evenly balanced thing. Listen, I'm not saying your life is 50-50 is between what you have to do and what you get to do. Um, there is, you know, don't go into your work week tomorrow and go to your boss and be like, my pastor said work weeks are three and a half days of work and three and a half days of play. You probably can't find a job that agrees with you on that type of a work schedule, okay? It's not even balanced. However, we know that our life is, is this give and take. Our life is we work hard, we play hard. 
Um, and, and, and so you, probably like me, have had a conversation with your kids who are currently experiencing summer vacation, right? They don't have anywhere to be. They don't have to be anywhere currently, other than whatever mom tells them they have to, the places they have to be or what they have to do. And so you, like me, have gotten up on Monday morning, and you're making breakfast, and they're like, what are you doing today, Dad? And you say to them, I'm going to work. I'm going to work. Or your mom, I'm going to work or whatever. And, and they said, oh, do you have to go today? Do you have to go today? Yes, I have to go today. This is where I have to be. This is, this is people, we, we don't get the cool schedule like you do. Summer's off. You know, we, we work this whole time. And they keep arguing with you. And what you find yourself doing is, is playing this game with them. You look at them in the eye and you go, do you like having food in this fridge? Do you like wearing comfortable clothes? How was that bed that you slept in last night? Was it warm? Was it comfortable? I have to work right? And we find ourselves arguing with four-year-olds about our work schedule and this balance between work and life, and it seems so lost in all of this. And yet, we've grown up in this. We know that life is a balance between work and play. Even when we look at Scripture, when we look at Scripture, what we see is this um, thing about God in the creation story, again, you know, creating this very... Um, we said last week that Genesis is a book about origins. Where do we come from and who are we? This is what the Jewish people said. And in that very beginning, they started it off with, we were placed inside of a garden. Our story begins with being, uh, being initiated as stewards of a creation, participatory in this freedom of creation, and yet under authority, don't eat from the tree. We know that we're not in control, that we have, uh, we sub, uh, part of our lives is in submission to a God who created us, but then also who has gifted us with the freedom to be able to create. So again, duty and joy, duty and joy, um, obligations and freedom. That's the balance that we find ourselves living in. And then we introduced last week this idea of bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. The motto of the Roman imperial order was panem et circensis, bread and circuses. This is the idea, this is the modern day equivalent of, or, but for them it was, let us give them bread and they'll be satisfied. Let us once in a while take them to circuses and they'll be fine. We cannot obligate somebody full time into duty, 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 duty. Every once in a while, you have to give them joy so that they don't break. Your workplace recognizes, whether it was because of a result of a union thing or a long time ago, or as just a result of you know, common workplace ethics, we cannot expect somebody to work seven days a week. They will break. We must give them Saturday off or Friday and Saturday off, or I don't know what your midweek work schedule looks like, but you live life between work and breaks, work and breaks, bread and circuses. If we can, and, and, and this is a very negative, by the way, bread and circuses is a negative outlook on how you utilize joy in your life. We agree on the necessity of joy. We agree on the necessity that people should have a, an arena of their life where they get to do what they want to do, but it's secondary to duty, and we do it out of obligation, not of necessity. We do it out of um, the, the, the defining features of their life will not be what they do with their free time. For the most part, how they measure up in life where goals and purposes and, and all of that is important is in that duty area of life. Very rarely do we ask, what do you do with your free time? Our first question for most people that we don't know is, what do you do, aka for work? That's what I mean, that's our defining thing in our culture. Maybe we get around to what are some of your hobbies, but that doesn't define it. That doesn't define people for us as much as what do you do for work? Bread and circuses. But what if play was meant to be more than just an escape? 
What if our culture teaches us work is primary, play is secondary, but what if, what if it's more than just an escape? We just sang uh, a song that says, your voice is a lighthouse in, in, in the dark and stormy seas, right? What if in this, in this dark and stormy sea, there is a voice? What if scripture is calling us into a different understanding of existence when it comes to work and duty than what we are comfortable with? Because this idea of Christian, uh, sorry, this idea of work and duty is something that has been implemented on us. And games are hopeless if they only serve to help us forget for a while that which we cannot change anyways. And here's why this is important, is because when we fall into a structure of this is how life works and this is just life in general, then what happens is we perceive life and our duty and our play as duty is for you, I do play for me. He's using the word duty again. I know. Duty is for you. What I do with what I ought to do, that's for you because you give me a paycheck and you, uh, we have agreed on maybe an informal or a handshake or maybe it's on paper, a contract where I supply you some deliverables and you pay me with money, which that can then use to provide for my family or myself and then engage in play. Duty is for you. Play is for me. And what we've done when we live like this is we almost create this like dichotomy, which basically means that these two things are mutually exclusive, that this is my work life and this is my play life, and there the two shall meet. This is what I do for work, and you have no say over what I do for play. Can you imagine a workplace um, that, that um, directs you how to play, like what you do on your free time? We want to have a say in that as well. You would run from that job. You'd be like, ah, uh, that feels like a conflict of interest. That feels like you're stepping over some lines. Um, what I do for me is that's for me. Like, that's me. Like, you can tell me what to do Monday through Friday, but like, don't tell me how to spend my Saturdays. I get to do that on my, my own. And it feels like these two different lifestyles. And the problem with that is that's not really how life works. You're a mo- more holistic and integrated being than that. What you do on Saturday and Sunday and in your free time does affect your work life. You do not live this duplicitous life. You do not live this, this compartmentalized life where what I do here doesn't really matter. What happens at work doesn't matter with what I do at home, and what I do at home doesn't matter with what I do with work. You are a more holistic being than that, and therefore, how you view your free time matters. Because if you go into life, like sometimes we do, and think, I work so that I can earn the ability to do what I want and have the freedom to do what I want on this side of things, we feel like we have earned it. We feel like we carry that into it. And when things are earned, when I feel like I earn it, I feel the freedom to do with it as I please. And this is unaccountable for me. Let me illustrate it this way. All right. Um, I, I get a chance to meet with couples who want to get married. They ask me to oversee the ceremony. And I say, I'd love to most of the time, uh, as long as the calendar works. And I would, but I would love to sit down with you beforehand and walk through what I call some premarital counseling things. These are things um, I wish somebody would have talked to me about prior to getting married. These are things that I think are important before you stand up in front of family and friends and say, I do, and I will always, and all of those promises and vows that you make to one another. Um, we should probably talk about big issues. Uh, a lot of times it has to do with family planning and how many kids do you want to have and do you want to have kids and uh, what, what is the five-year plan. As you integrate your 
lives together, right? As two become one, what is that one? Are we on the same page in terms of what that one is going to look like? And one of the biggest areas that, of conflict in every relationship, dating, married, uh, whatever, is always finances. Finances are a big deal. You know this. You, you've, been, you've, you've probably had a relationship. Many of you have had a relationship that have gone to the point where we begin to, to kind of share some things together. Maybe we live together. Maybe we got married. And in that moment, you have to ha- we have to talk about what finances are look like? Because this is a difficult thing, because inevitably in a relationship, one person is a spender and one person is a saver, and the saver does not want to share, isn't as psyched about sharing finances as the spender is. The spender thinks, I have twice as much to work with here. This is amazing. The spender, the saver is like, hey, this isn't very fair. Um, I don't like the freedom that is there. So I propose that we have these, you know, separate bank accounts for a while until we kind of figure things out in life. And yeah, we're going to be married, but the house, the house will go 50-50 and the kids and this and that and that. And slowly and slowly and slowly, it begins to get more integrated and more integrated. Whenever I sit down with a couple, I would say, here, listen, my goal for you is to have a healthy enough conversation to be able to integrate those fully because I think it's an important deal. I think these that you cannot say, hey, we are two becoming one when you've got this issue as big as finances being separate. I understand why people, some people do it. I get it. But what it does to me is it prioritizes control over trust, right? We oftentimes think, um, you know, trust is great, but control is better, Right. Um, unfortunately, when we figure out the source of that quote, it comes from Lenin, a Russian dictator. We're like, okay, well, I got to back away from that a little bit, right? <laughs> Control is fine. Trust is better. I would rather, if you're going to move into a fully integrated life, that finances become something where um, there, there's transparency and trust. And listen, I know that you have the tendencies to spend, and that rubs me the wrong way in terms of my savings, but we're going to live, we're doing life together in this way. So, my wife and I decided a long time ago uh, when we got married that it was going to be full integration right away, uh, and she, I brought, uh, I brought uh, a, a little bit to the table. She brought a lot to the table in terms of debt. So then we, we had this, um, just, that's okay, uh, school loans, nothing, nothing stupid. It was just whatever. And, and so um, we, we decided, she's in here, she's like probably trying to defend herself right now. Ah, oh, come on, you know. Um, she brought the looks. I didn't bring very much in that department, so we're, I can't consider ourselves fairly even. Um, we decided that although it was going to be integrated, one way to uh, work through this idea of independence and freedom and finances is to establish a sort of allowance. It's, it's bad to say allowance because allowance sounds like I'm, I'm back in ninth grade doing, you know, dusting the house and vacuuming so that mom gives me five bucks so I can buy baseball cards. It's, it's more than that. Unaccountable funds, funds that I have that I am unaccountable towards, right? I have money. She has money every month. She has way more than me because if you listen to the podcast, I spend mine on stupid stuff. I, I, I look like, uh, uh, like uh, Lloyd Christmas or, or Dumb and Dumber. I look like the guy who went out for groceries and came back with the hat and the, the everything. Like, only get the essentials. Yeah, only, only the essentials, Harry. I'm going out. So uh, I, I tend to have a little bit looser definition of what is essential in, in all of this. But no matter what, we always, we, we, we have this and, and I get to spend it however I want, that's the freedom that I have, and she gets to do the very same thing in her life. And, and the, the problem, or not the problem, the thing about um, unaccountable 
Uh, is that you tend to be less disciplined in those areas than you do with... I'm more disciplined with our finances as a family than I am with my personal um, allowance, if you want to call it that, or my personal income or whatever, right? That, I tend to be like, hey, man, let's do it. That sounds great. Let's buy that. I'm really into that. I'm really into soccer all of a sudden. I'm really into hammocks. I'm really into anything. Uh, Then it just kind of goes in those directions, but when it comes to, to our finances as a home, we're, um, we're fairly disciplined, right? So when you feel like, let's translate that into work and duty and joy. When I feel like I have earned the right to do what I want to do from a work standpoint or in, in, a, in a parenting thing where um, you know, you're both sharing the responsibilities of a kid, and, 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 and you come home after work, and you're both tired, and it's like, who's doing bedtime, and who's doing this, and who's driving the kid to this place, and this t-ball game, and this whatever. You, you feel like, I have earned this right. I stayed up late. I got up early. I, took the, I did the last three trips. You do one. I, and, and, and then the question becomes, what did you do with your time? It doesn't matter what I did with my time. This is unaccountable time for me. I did nothing with it. It was amazing. I just watched Netflix. I just played video games. I just, I didn't do anything. I drove to the mall and I walked around, right? That is the, that is unaccountable. And that's fine in that area. But when it comes to the area of unaccountable joy, we often find ourselves in this place where we don't really fully appreciate it. We don't fully work it out. We, we treat joy as in, listen, I have worked for five days. I deserve two days off. And we carry that into our relationship with God and how we treat God. And unfortunately, what we tend to do is treat God as a pseudo boss, always looking over our shoulder, always expecting things from us. And we feel like, listen, as long as I'm good for like five days of the week, give me Friday nights. Give me my Saturday. I want to be able to do some, I, I want to be, go through seasons of life. And we feel like God looks down and goes, well, he's been pretty good for three months. I'm going to give him a little bit of a break. He kind of did his own thing. He became, became selfish. He had this, this addiction, this habit, this thing that he, we know God's not proud of. But you know what? I've been pretty good. So therefore, I deserve it. I have earned this chance. I have earned this joy. Even if it's things that we want to do that are not like bad in life, like, or, or um, that we, we, we don't feel ashamed of in terms of if it came out and if everybody knew, if, if I could just be able to, if I could just spend this money on the things that I want, I really want to buy this ATV. I want to buy a pool. I want to invest into our family. I want to do this. And we feel guilty and we feel this and that. And the other thing about God looking over going, you could have spent that on missions. Think of all the kids in Africa who aren't going to have a meal, but you needed a pool, didn't you? You know, and you're like, ah, and we, we, we live as if God is peeking over our shoulder, as if he's another boss with all of these expectations on us. And he kind of allows us joy once in a while, but only because he wants us to get back to living the right kind of a life. And joy for him is a byproduct. It's secondary. What's primary is obey, obedience, 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 duty, 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 a little bit of joy just so you don't break. But back, as soon as you get it, and as soon as you back to obedience, if you could quickly. Back to work on Monday, if you can. I want to propose that I don't think that God looks at joy in that way with you. I think that, unfortunately, our tendency to bring that perception of God has come from how we've been raised as a family and how we have integrated ourselves into the workforce. And, and yeah, I just don't think it's reflective of how God views joy for you. Something that's like passive necessary, but like 
you know, he's not really about it. He puts up with it, but yeah, whatever. I think the problem is that we start off on the wrong foot. I think for us, the story that we tell ourselves or the story that we hear from uh, the front or uh, we hear from people in spiritual authority figures or books or whatever is that man is sinful and we must woo God into doing something about it. The starting point, if the starting point for, for you in terms of religion is that man is bad and we need God to help us and we got to woo him into doing it, then what that means is, well, he's wooed by righteous living, that somehow living in accordance with some of the rules that we can somehow woo him into this idea of personal salvation or being saved or having a good outlook on me or blessing me, blessing me when I do things good, cursing me when I do things bad. That's the perception that we carry into it. The story does not start with, in the beginning was dirtbag man. And he's just so slimy and gross. Look at him. The story starts not with the dastardly status of man, but the glory of God. If you've ever been to a church or in a church environment or got stuck on one of those channels at late night TV with the big hair and, and the, you know, the white suits and everything else, you've probably heard about how bad man is. You've probably heard of original sin, of our sinful nature, and yet it, we are left by ourselves. We do oftentimes become selfish individuals, left with ourselves. That we we are we are all about us. There's pride in there. I get that. I understand that. But that's not how the story actually starts. It doesn't start with the dastardly status of man. It starts with the glory of God. When you look back at Genesis chapter one, the origin story, where do we come from? Who are we? It starts with God saying, deciding, you know what? Let's make man in our own image. Let's create him to be able to rule over all of this creation. Let's give him roles and responsibilities. And let's place him in paradise. Listen, the whole idea of sin and sinful nature occurs early on in the story, but it's not in the first chapter. It's not even in the second chapter. It's in the third chapter where this whole idea of an apple and us falling into, well, what about maybe God doesn't have what's best for us in mind. Let's partake of this fruit. Let's see where it leads. Let's not trust in God. Let's not trust that God has what's best for us, but maybe perhaps something different. But the story starts with, I'm going to create, we said this last week, why did God create the world? He didn't do it in order to to um, uh, allow himself divine status. It's not like he wasn't God, then he creates man and then becomes God now that he has some beings that can now worship him. It's not dependent on that. He created it out of a sense of joy, out of an abundance of joy. Why? He created out of play. Why? Because I can, because I want to, to share in this glory. I want somebody to experience this with me. And so then he creates mankind in this way. Original sin doesn't tell the whole story. A better way to say original glory. Listen, here's what it says. Verse 26, chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along in the ground. And you think, I don't want to be a farmer. This doesn't sound important to me. I get it. I understand. This is a very agricultural standpoint. This is, for them, this meant ruling over creation and having dominion over it. Fill the earth and subdue it. This meant more than just... Uh, joy and success for those who are interested in owning a farm. This was, this was life and the experience of having the freedom to create and participate in creation. And because of this, one of the early church fathers, St. Irenaeus, said this, Gloria de vivendo homo, the glory of God is man fully alive. 
The glory of God is man fully alive. Creation is all about God's glory. And the reason that we know that is he, he says, I, I placed man in the garden for him to experience it in the fullness of it. And his joy, his joy in this is joy to me. The glory of God is man fully alive. Not the glory of God is man fully repentant, feeling bad and convicted over what he did and starting to live within the rule books that's kind of established to me. To him, when he experiences joy, I get joy out of that. You as a parent, you know this. Sometimes in life, the greatest joy that you have is watching your kids experience something for the very first time with an immense amount of joy. Disneyland is cool as an adult. It's way cooler with parents. Like I hear people who are like, I'm going to Disneyland and you're not taking your kids? No, we're good. We're just going to go. I'm like, that's cool, I guess. But can you imagine like, the feeling of taking your kids in there for the first time, walking them down Main Street, pointing all these things out to them, watching them with their eyes full, and them experiencing like this incredibly immersive world. That, that is like joy at its peak, isn't it? The glory of God is man fully alive, fully engaged in duty and joy. I read a book recently by a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. He was a German... Uh, theologian, and he taught at uh, this great school. And, and here, here's what he says about joy. What we actually see as the work proceeds is an impressive struggle to break out from under the burden which both philosophy and theology have imposed on Western man. By being so much more concerned with the sin of man, the sin of man, the sin of man. You come to us on a weekly basis, we tell you how bad you are. You're bad, 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 bad. You can do it. And luckily, we offer a, 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 an opportunity of hope. How convenient is that? Sin, 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 with the glory of God, the glory of God and not the sin of man, not even the redemptive work of Christ to deal with the sin of man, is the most important thing and the starting point. Listen to that. That's a little bit revolutionary from what I grew up in in terms of church, and I think probably you as well. For you, the central thing has been Christ, you're bad, but lucky for you, Christ came to save you. That is true. While that is true and insanely important, the story begins with the glory of God that man was meant to experience an immense amount of joy because that's what, that's what brings glory to God. That's what he wanted from the very beginning, the very beginning. So how does the story begin? How does the story begin? Doesn't the beginning of a story tell us, provide us the foundation? Why, why is this important? Because the beginning of the story, how we begin to set the foundation for the story, the context of the story, shapes what it becomes. When you start, when the foundation of the story is you're bad and you know you are, because we know we are, and so that the reason it's worked is because we do feel conviction and we do feel imperfect and we do feel like we're not always living up to what we want to be. But it sets the stage for something else in the same way that the questions that you ask in life reveal your true motives about what you believe and what you want, right? Think about this. When you as a parent ask your kids the very first question that they come from home from school and they have this envelope, uh, with, they've been going for a while now and they've got this grades thing, your first question is what? What grades, what'd you get for grades? Not, were you a kind and compassionate individual at school today? What did you get? What does that show us? What you achieve in your time at school is important to me. What you achieve. Uh, when it comes to uh, work and, and um, you go, have, you've gone through the interview process and they begin to ask 
uh, or maybe even on the side of the employer, and you're interviewing this person for the job, and you, and, and you begin asking a lot of questions, you know, talking through what the job requirements are and, and what the expectations should be, and you spend 15, 20 minutes doing this, and then you flip the script on them and say, do you have any questions about this job? And they would say, yes, what does it pay? Immediately you know what's important to them. Finances is important to them. Well, I understand because they have to provide for their family and everything, but all of a sudden you realize in that moment, this is what's really important for them. When you begin to talk about, uh, here's the deal, when you talk about the base of Scripture being the sin of man, what you're communicating is that duty is more important than joy. When you lead with, in the beginning, you were created to experience an immense amount of joy and share in the joy of creation with God. That tells a different story about how to experience and what our roles are in duty and joy. Yes, our life and our time will be shaped more in terms of quantity, a lot of times in terms of duty than joy, understandable. It points towards, we said this last week, it points towards a future that that is not the case, where joy is the serious business of heaven, where joy is more heavily weighted than duty is. As, it, as the original case in the garden, I'm giving you all of this expanse, this one tiny thing, don't do that, just as a reminder that you're under authority, you're not in control, that I'm in control, but for the most part, experience the fullness of creation. That's the message that starts. Yes, our nature goes... Anytime we're told, like, you can do anything in here, but don't touch that, what are we focused on as a kid? Remember as a kid, you're like, well, what is that exactly? So let me see how that works. You can touch anything in this room, but don't touch that electrical outlet. I'm going to go poke some things in there and see what happens and see what the experience is like. Well, that's our nature. We just do that. But that's not what it was designed to be. And when we take an accurate reflection of what it was supposed to be, then what happens is we have a fuller understanding and appreciation for joy in life. Joy your experience of joy is not giving you a few kudos off to the side so that you'll get back to work and in, in walking in obedience with him. Is walking in obedience important? Yes. But joy, this is different. Following Christ in this way, joy for the Christian should be something different. A lighthouse in the darkness, a lighthouse in the, in, in the waving seas where a culture says, all about work, a little bit of joy. He would say, no, no, no. joy is just as important. In fact, your future the, the, the blessed hope that you live with relies heavily on joy and, and, and less about responsibility, less about duty. So the, the, the pull or the hope for us as Christians is a more positive understanding in this sense. The glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. And we know this, man. If you're a parent, I'm, just gonna, I'm, I'm liking it to this because this is so... I don't know. I think that God created structures, social structures in our life. Uh, marriage. We learn a lot about our relationship with God through marriage. We learn a lot about God through our uh, through the way that we parent and, and, and do that. And that doesn't mean if you're not a parent, you don't understand this. You you, you were a kid at once. You you get this with your relationship with your parents. But the parents' greatest joy is their child fully alive. Both when you take them to Disneyland, but even later in life. Think about this. As a parent, you want your kid to obey you while they don't really know the full implications of their decision-making. I know more about life than you. Trust me on this. 
you don't want him as a boyfriend, okay? But he's so, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm just telling you, you don't, okay? And later on in life, so in that season, their obedience is what brings you joy or lack thereof if they choose not to obey. But at some point, they hit an age where you kind of hope that you don't even have to tell them what to do anymore. They choose for themselves. It's not cool to sit around the bridge table saying, my 35-year-old still does everything that I tell him to do. Isn't that really cool? They'd be like, no, it's not actually (laughs) that they still obey, that they're calling for advice on how to live their life. At some point, and that's what adolescence is all about, the slow give and take of, okay, I'm not going to tell you what to do anymore. I'm going to expect you to make those decisions and make them as if I was standing over your shoulder or watching you or reading your phone after you sent that text message, which I'm going to do for the first few years. But then when you hit 21, I won't do it anymore, uh, or 18 or whatever your line is. Um, but but that, that's, the sign of, that's the sign of maturity. We would not say somebody who's listening to their parents and taking rules and responsibilities for everything at 35, that's a sign of a mature parent-child relationship. That would be an immature child-parent relationship, right? Um, you want them to be fully alive, fully aware of their decisions, fully aware of, of their responsibilities to themselves, to, to you as their parent, even though it's a different role now to them, to their spouse, to their kids. You want them to understand what it means to live life under authority, but you love the fact that they have the freedom to be able to do it. The, fr- the fact that they had the freedom to choose that and to not choose to do the bad things, but to choose, to choose a lifestyle that, 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 that is faithful to you as a parent. That they're making that decision, but not because out of obligation for you, but because they want to. You guys, that, that is when you experience the glory of being a parent who has successfully raised a human being to be a beneficial presence in the world. The glory of God is man fully alive, fully cognizant that in this life there is a balance between work and duty and joy and freedom but somebody who appreciates that freedom is thankful for it, walks in, thank you, God, for all of, for the fact that I live in a country that um, we have these standards where I don't have to work seven days a week, that I'm not operating under this slave mentality where I am what I produce, that I can experience joy fully. And, and in this, I get to do what I want to do, I learn more about you in that, that it's not an escape from reality, but you created me in this way. So therefore, my appreciation for joy runs deep. It is part of my existence. It's part of my love for you. It's that you want good things for me and blessings for me. And in doing that, I still am reminded I am under authority. I'm still reminded I'm under authority. I'm I'm, I'm accountable to you with all of this. But even as we age, and those of us who have invested into retirement begin to Um, experience an existence that is less on duty and more on joy. 
You see, if we've accepted a spirituality or a Christianity that is dominated by rules and obligations and expectations and, and has, no real, has no real good motives for joy, when we graduate or ascend to that life where our culture allows us to be experiencing more joy than duty because of the fact that we've saved and done this and been smart with our finances, do we have a Christianity that matches up to that? Do we have a belief system that allows us the space to be able to say, this is what God has created me for as well? That I get to love God in loving life. The glory of God is man fully alive. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help this to sink into every single one of our beings, that, that, that we, um, depending on kind of where we're at in season of life and kids and career and, and retirement and jobs and everything, that joy still always, duty and play, duty and, and, and work, all, or duty and, uh, and joy and freedom always play some role. But depending on where we're at in life, they're, they're, the balance begins to kind of swerve in, in either direction. And um, we, we, we know that, God, I, I think that you created us to crave that joy, crave that freedom, that you don't denounce that, but you live into that and say that in loving all of those things that you experience in joy, you, you are even learning to love what it means to be dependent on, uh, on me as well. So I pray that you would give each and every single one of us the wisdom um, to know how to handle that based on where we're at in life and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.